sermon text for this morning is Mark chapter 8, verse 22, verses uh, to chapter 9, verse 1. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. And he went home to his village saying, uh, and he sent him home to his village saying, uh, do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to, charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Forever, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and, and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death, death until they see the kingdom of God after his come with power. Of the Lord, please be seated. Good morning, church. It is good to be with you this morning. Uh, my name is Stephen Collins, as Alex comes to making the introduction. I am a pastoral resident here at Redemption Tucson, and sometimes I do a little bit of everything, even up here with a guitar, but I get the privilege of preaching. I just want to uh, pause and say thank you to somebody. Rick Ummel came down, he's the guy that needed music, and I'm like, who's that guy? He uh, leads uh, Adventure Arcadia, and he's actually being a part of the church planting team that's happening at Adventure in Scottsdale. We say we're a church planting church, and this is an expression of that. So actually, would you give me a favor and actually thank Rick for driving all the way here? Yeah, thank you, Rick. Happy belated 4th of July. Hopefully you guys celebrated in a fully American fashion with uh, too much food, uh, pots and soda, maybe a trip to Walmart, uh, watching some baseball, I don't know, whatever feels American, it's not the time. Uh, I had hot dogs, baseball, and brownies, which felt pretty American. So, I feel like I celebrated well. Uh, every week, though, guys, we come and we sit under God's Word, and we ask, who is Jesus, and how do you respond to Him? And Mark, the author of this book, the Gospel according to Mark, is revealing masterfully week after week, the person, the work, and the kingdom of Jesus Christ in these pages. And like any good narrative, there's tension, there's an arc, there are stakes, and there's conflicts. 
And what we see is that Jesus is the king. And that he's bringing forth his kingdom. His rule, that, that carried effect. And that was, in, that was intended, really, is what was going on there. Uh, I'm going to give them a second to get that kind of locked in here. Uh, but yeah, Jesus is bringing forth his kingdom, his rule, and his reign in his world, in his timing. And, and he's doing this in his way. And, and Jesus really is, he's in control. And no one's going to impede our king from his mission. And so we want to equip you with God's word this morning. And so uh, if you do not have a Bible, we want to get one for you. And so would you please raise your hand if you don't have a Bible. We believe that this word informs and defines all things. And that is the highest authority in our life. When we sit under God's word, we do not sit above God's word. And so if you do not have a Bible, people are coming down the side. Uh, this is a gift to you. Please keep it. Uh, but if you have a Bible, just return it back at the Connect Desk. Also, if you uh, would like a Bible in Spanish, um, I'm not going to say the line in Spanish because I'm going to make myself look really silly, and that's not how I want to start this thing. So uh, we do have Spanish Bibles if you prefer that as well. So if you would like one, keep your hand up there. Let me pray, uh, just even, even for like our audio visuals here, as sometimes those can be finicky. So let me pray. Pray for our hearts. Pray uh, for myself, and just pray that this time would be shaping to us. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Lord, thank you even for amplified sound and just the fact that I don't have to shout right now so everyone can hear us. Lord, thank you for our volunteers that make Sundays possible. Lord, I pray that your word would shape us, it would define us, it would move us, Lord. God, I pray that this text, this crucial text, it would shape us, that it would move us, that it would help us to live all of life all for you, Jesus. I pray that we would be struck anew with these questions. Now, who are you, Jesus? I pray this would be more clear to us this morning. And how are we to respond to you? I pray that that would be more clear this morning. Lord, be with me, and uh, I pray that I would speak clearly as I ought to speak, that I would speak boldly as I ought to speak, as your word says, and that I would decrease and you would increase. I pray, Jesus, you'd be put on display here this morning. Thank you for this opportunity for all of us to sit under your word and be shaped by it. We love you because you first loved us. Shape us this morning. In your name, amen. So, before we jump into this week, I want to quickly look at last week, because I think it really sets the stage well for this morning. And last week, we saw that Jesus diagnoses spiritual blindness. We saw this both in the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, as well as his disciples. Jesus diagnoses spiritual blindness. And God, Jesus is the good physician who can accurately diagnose our broken condition. And I just need to pause here and just kind of do, do some work here. And that is, our condition is not, as we talked about last week, it is not that we're just semi-flawed, mostly good people who just need little tweaks and we'd be all right. We just need, you know, to be spoken to a little clearer and then we would hear. Or we just need to be, the letters to be a little bigger and then we could see. Or we just, as we said last week, we just need our ears cleaned a little bit and then we could hear and then we'd understand and we'd be all right. No, we are naturally deaf people. We are naturally blind people. Our condition is blindness, as we talked about. And in the same way the blind man doesn't need a bigger font to see, he needs utter healing, we are in the same state. We need nothing less than utter healing for our broken and sinful state. And the good news is that Jesus does not just provide the right diagnosis for our spiritual blindness, Jesus heals our spiritual blindness as well. So we were saying this morning that Jesus diagnoses spiritual blindness and Jesus also heals spiritual blindness. He is able to heal to the uttermost. 
And that brings us to today, church. And, and today we do have a unique Sunday. Many commentators, many theologians, many historians say that what we're going to walk through this morning is actually the linchpin of Mark. It's actually the turning point in Mark. And this is a big week as we walk through this. And week by week we've been asking, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And we've been getting these pictures, these, these parables, these pieces of who is Jesus. And this morning we get resounding clarity. We get resounding clarity. And so we're just going to get to work because we have a lot to cover. And so if you have your Bibles, please turn to Mark 8, starting in verse 22. And all the, the words are going to be up here on the screen as well. And they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. And he sent him home saying, do not even enter the village. So what is going on here? This is kind of a bizarre uh, situation, I, I will admit. Like, what is going on here? Jesus, uh, did he, like, mess up the first time? Is this, like, a bad magician, uh, magician that you see on, like, a boardwalk somewhere in California who, like, the, pick a card, any card, and then you pick one and he shows it, and, like, that's not my card, Jesus. Like, there's, is that what we're talking about here? Is this, like, a failure on his Did he, like, mess up? And let me try this again. Uh, that, is, that is not what is happening. Let's just be clear. Uh, Jesus has shown that he can heal people. That has been a consistent theme coming up over and over again in Mark. We've seen it in the leper, the paralytic. He raises a little girl from the dead. Jesus healing the blind man here in stages is not due to his inadequacy, but it's due to his intentionality. This has a distinct purpose. And look at me, this is a, this is a big theme that's going to come up this morning. The intentionality is this. The blind man's physical eyes are a reflection of the spiritual eyes of the disciples. As the blind man gets his physical sight, the disciples are getting their spiritual insight as well. See, they're both going from blind to blurry to clarity. They're both going to go from blind to blurry to clarity. And Jesus heals this man's blindness physically in stages to show how the disciples' blindness and our blindness is healed spiritually in stages. So we're just going to walk through this. The blind man starts in utter blindness, total darkness. He cannot see. Verse 23. He, Jesus, took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. So we got to pause. Let's just remember in Mark, uh, typically the crowds are not a good thing. They want to use Jesus and make him fit into their agenda and their plan. This is what we've seen over and over again. They want a false Jesus who fits nicely into their lives and categories rather than the true Jesus who's calling all things to submit and come under his authority. And so Jesus calls them to a place away from the crowds, maybe away from unbelief, if you will. And then Jesus heals him partially. And I need us to notice here that he physically, Jesus physically draws near to this man. This has come up before. He lays his hands on him. He does not heal from a distance. We've talked about this. Jesus does not heal from a distance. He doesn't kind of like point his healing gun and sort of like zap him from a distance, but he heals him from proximity. Jesus is not afraid to enter into the darkness. He is not afraid to draw near to the brokenness. And the blind man begins to see the realities around him. Things that he was blind to, he begins to comprehend. We see in verse 24, 
I see people, but they look like trees walking. So he lays his hands on him again. In verse 25, then Jesus lays his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. His blurry vision is healed fully. His sight is restored, and he experiences clarity. And before we keep going, I just need to pause and quickly uh, just note that there is a distinct application for us here as well. And like the blind man, we all start in a naturally blind state. We cannot see, but the good news is God intervenes. And incredibly, through Jesus' gracious initiative, blind people like us receive sight. That is good news. But our sight, it is blurry. This should uh, resound with us all today. Because this is us. We do not see with perfect clarity, any of us. So this should produce a great humility in us. And we're brought through a process of clarity by Jesus. Like the blind man, Jesus gives us our initial sight. And he continues to reveal clarity in our sight. And and the point for us, we just got to say this, the point for us is not to walk around and wonder, how do I not be blind? The point for us isn't to walk around and ask, what do I got to do? What do I got to do to prevent myself from being blind? And that is the wrong question. Our default mode is to try to fix ourselves, which is ironically blindness. See, the point is we need Jesus to fix us. We need Jesus to heal us. We need Jesus to restore us. We need Jesus to heal all of our blindness in all of its stages. See, Jesus does not just give us initial sight, but he gives us the ability to see rightly from start to finish. We only see because of Jesus. We only can comprehend any of the things we are talking about because of Jesus. And we need to trust that this is completely a work of Jesus from start to finish and not a a product of our own effort. And so, like I said, the blind man's physical eyes are a reflection of the spiritual eyes of the disciples. So we're going to get to them. Let's go to Mark uh, 8, starting in verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do the people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he, Jesus, asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them, to tell no one about him. This is a momentous claim. The disciples are getting their sight. This is incredible. Jesus asks, who do people say that I am? See, everyone has an idea of who Jesus is. I think we could pull 100 people here in Tucson, and we might get close to 100 answers. Yeah, even the disciples in that day, they said, you know, John the Baptist, Elijah, a prophet. And, uh, you know, we would say maybe a teacher, a wise sage. Our culture might say a good example, a moral guide. But Jesus, like the good physician he is, surgically asked and probed them, but who do you say that I am? And something clicked. In Matthew, we see Jesus saying, actually, God gave Peter this insight. And they saw Jesus for who he truly is. And Peter answers, you are the Christ. It's as if Peter is realizing the miracles, the healings, the signs, the purging of evil, all authority over the created order, the demons obeying you, Jesus, the parables, it's all coming together, Jesus. You are not just announcing that you are bringing a kingdom. You are the king. Jesus, you are the Christ. And see, this is the turn, church. This is the hook. 
Peter's confession of Jesus being the Christ is a confession that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the anointed one, that he is the king that will end all kings, that he is the promised one of old, that he is the one who would finally set the world right. This is good news. And this is what the disciples and this is what the entire Jewish people they were waiting for. This Christ, this Messiah, this one who had set the world right. And this title of Christ held that much weight. And Peter is saying, you've been waiting for him and he is here. It is Jesus. It's incredible. And, and I don't want us to miss something. I, I think we can get really focused rightly on what Peter confesses, but I want us to take a second and look at where Peter confesses as well. Because Mark doesn't have to put in the locations of things, but this has intentionality. See, where Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ is Caesarea Philippi. And this is critical. See, this location historically had been the seat of false god after false god after false god. What started as worship to the false god Baal, then progressed into the false Greek god Pan, and now in the contemporary, it was the newest false god, Caesar himself, here at Caesarea Philippi, a throne dedicated to the god Caesar. And this declaration of Jesus as the Messiah here is nothing less than an affront and an attack on the authority of Rome itself. This has come up. Rome, you think you have authority. No, you are dust on the scales. Is that Jesus is saying? You're saying, I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. I am the King. I have all authority, Jesus says. I am not under your authority, Rome. You are under mine. Jesus is confessed here as the true King in the midst of all the false kings. This has intentionality. But, but yet again, curiously, Jesus calls them to keep this message silent. Like the blind man is told to not even enter the village in verse 26, Jesus says for the disciples in verse 30 to not reveal that he is the Christ. And, and as we've seen before in Mark, Jesus is the king and he will reveal his kingdom and his kingship in his way, in his timing. And it's as Jesus is saying, you are right in confessing that I am the king but I am not the king you are expecting. You are right in confessing that I am the Christ, but I'm not the Christ you are expecting. Before they can proclaim this glorious truth, they need to be corrected. They need to be reoriented. They need to be corrected. And, and Jesus really takes them from, you know, who do others say that I am? To who do you say that I am? To now let me show you who I am. Because as magnificent a claim as what Peter made, and a right claim that Jesus is the Christ, he's still seeing in part. He doesn't quite understand what that means. He has a false idea of what's going on. And so Jesus is going to provide clarity to their incomplete sight of who he is and how they should respond. So let's get into what Jesus uh, defines as clarity. Verse 31. And he, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. 
For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I just want to let this be a warning to us of how quickly things can go from really good to really bad in our life. Like, I just want to take a second. Like, Peter goes from, like, yes to no. Like, nailed it to bombed it. From crushed it to utterly dropped the ball. Uh, One of my favorite things I did uh, in my sermon prep was looking up just, like, sports failure videos. Uh, It was really fun. It was a good 10-minute segue. And this is something my wife actually enjoys. If ESPN is on and there's, like, the not top 10, which is, like, the worst 10 plays of the week, she's glued. I can say, check out this great play. She's like, I don't care, but a guy falling down, I'm in. Like, I'm ready to watch this. And my favorite moment of just, like, amazing to failure was this, was this guy on a bike. And you guys may have seen this video, but he's coming around at the final turn, got, like, 100 yards to go. And he's riding his bike, and he takes his, hand, his hands off the handlebars, which, for me, is going to end horribly, and for this guy, I did as well. And he's kind of doing, like, some of this, like, I'm amazing. Look at me, I'm great. Like just doing this. Then all of a sudden, like, wobble, wobble, boom. It just, like, crashes. And he's, and he's got the, like, foot clips in. So he, like, can't get up, which is, like, the best part here. So he, like, can't get up. And he's trying to, like, get up. And, like, three, four, five, six guys just breathe by him. And he finishes not in first, not in second, not in third. But he finishes in, like, 18th place because he can't get up. He can't get his feet up. He's trying to, like, run with the bike. And he can't do it. It's just amazing. I just picture, like, that's Peter. He's like, I got it, nailed it, crushed it. Failure. Like, just does not get it. And, and before we get into that, which, which is incredible and pretty funny, um, what we see first is that Jesus is defining. Jesus is defining who the Christ is, who the Messiah is, who he truly is. And, and, and the Christ is not only the prophesied conquering king, but he's the suffering servant as well. And, and we got to back up even further in verse 31 here. Uh, you can follow here. And he, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. The Son of Man must suffer. And there is so much packed into these six words. First, the Son of Man. Uh, let's be clear. This is not a um, title linked to Jesus' humanity, but it's actually linked to a prophecy of old. A prophecy referring to the book of Daniel in chapter 7, that there would be one like this, like a son of man who would come with his holy angels and put the world right. Jesus saying he's the son of man and saying, I'm him. That's me. See, this son of man, though, this Messiah, he must suffer, Jesus says. And, and really here is where we're now starting to enter into uncharted waters for people. See, the disciples, they had a contract. The Jewish people, they had an idea. They had a plan for the Messiah, and it did not include suffering and death because the Messiah doesn't suffer, he conquers. The Messiah doesn't die and seemingly lose, he wins the battle. And little do they know that this kingdom, that this king is bringing, comes in power and victory through suffering and death. We're going to get to that in in a little bit here. But Jesus says that he must suffer. And this is huge. He's saying that this is, in fact, his mission. This is blowing up their framework for who the Messiah is and what he's out to do. See, the way of Jesus is the way of the cross. We, We are reminded of this every week, that it's all about the cross. And by saying that Jesus must suffer and die, he's saying this is why he came. See, this is voluntary. This is planned. This is calculated. This is the Messiah mission. This is the king's game plan. Let me be clear. The cross is not something that Jesus just happened. Like, it just happened to him. This isn't something that he, like, stumbled into and was like, oh, 
dang it, like how am I gonna, I gotta redeem this somehow. No, this is what he came to do. This is his mission. And Jesus also says, really mysteriously, I think, to the disciples, that he will rise. Because the disciples and the Jewish people had no framework of a suffering Christ. They also had no framework for a risen Christ. Uh, they believed in a general resurrection at the end of time, but not about. They didn't believe in a. a they had no framework for a specific resurrection by the Messiah that would end all sin, suffering, death, evil, and justice. They they don't understand. They don't have clear sight. Their sight is blurry. And let's just see in verse thirty-two here. Jesus says this plainly. There's no parable here. He says this plainly. And, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. You know you're in a bad place where you're trying to rebuke Jesus. Um, I, that one is for free. Uh, when you have too little view of Jesus, you end up trying to correct Jesus and saying silly things. And it, it's as if Peter is saying, no, 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 Jesus, you, you don't understand. Uh, that's not what the Messiah does, Jesus. No, 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 uh, Jesus... Come back on track. We, we don't need, we don't want this suffering, dying, rising Messiah. We need you to deal with Rome. Look around. There's a problem. Deal with it. That's what you do. You're the Messiah. Come on. Deal with it, Jesus. And Jesus' mission, I, I need to tune into this, is so much bigger than they ever thought. See, Jesus' mission and his kingdom is so much bigger than a religious movement of a time. It's so much bigger than the overthrowing of Rome. It's bigger than a political party, a Supreme Court ruling. It's bigger than a bumper sticker, a denomination, or a cause, or agenda, or whatever we want to fit him into, because Jesus does not fit into our narrative. He will not be stuffed into our narrative. He will not fit into our kingdom. And the reality is, no, he calls all kingdoms and all agendas and all things to come under his ultimate authority and his ultimate kingship. As he is saying to Peter, no, Peter, you do not get to define the Christ. I am the Christ, and I'm telling you what I will do, and I will tell you how you will respond. And before we get down on Peter, because I think, I think this sermon could turn into, don't be like Peter, be like Jesus. I, we do the same thing. Let's just be really clear. Like we do the same thing. It just looks maybe a little different. Jesus, no, no. Your job is to make me happy and, and comfortable. So I can't, I can't go through this trial or this pain. No, no, no. Jesus, your job is to fit real nicely. You know, but after you know, breakfast and before lunch on Sunday, you fit really conveniently there. You know, you're not really supposed to call all of life, all of my finances, all of my relationships, all of my sex life, all of my dreams to come under your authority. No, no, no. Fit nicely into the hour and a half. It's kind of where you belong, Jesus. Real nice into my life. No, 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 Jesus. Your job is to be my cheerleader and my supporter and tell me that I'm going to succeed and support me in that. No, you're not, you're not supposed to challenge me and convict me and change me to make me more like you. Let's be clear. Jesus does not call us and invite us to have a seat at the table and cast our vote for who we would like him to be and what we'd like him to do. He is the Christ. He has a mission. And all he's inviting us to do is simply respond. So how does Jesus respond? Verse 33. 
But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. See, ultimately, Jesus' rebuke is rooted in the fact that Peter was not looking at the things of God, but looking at the things of man. That he had this warped view on who the Messiah is and what his role is and what he does. And ultimately, Peter is acting like Satan. This has come up a few times for how Jesus interacts with demons and Satan. And this reality is that demons and Satan, their primary job is not to scare us, but to impede us from following Jesus. And Peter is trying to impede Jesus right now from his mission. So he's acting in the spirit and in line with the character of Satan, impeding Jesus. And so he says, get behind me, Satan. And I also think, just personally, that Peter's rebuke is rooted in self-preservation here. Um, Peter believes that Jesus is the king. He's got a misunderstanding of what that is, but he believes he's the king. And if Peter is ultimately Jesus' right-hand man, like, this should be a good gig for Peter. Like, I'm the right-hand guy because the guy that's going to overthrow all of this. I'm in. I'm in, Jesus. This sounds like a role I can do. And, but then the, <laughs> Jesus says, yeah, I'm the king but I'm going to suffer and die. And so as Peter's saying, like, wait, wait, wait. If you're going to suffer and die, what does that mean for me? Like, what does that mean for me? And Jesus will have nothing to do with self-serving disciples who would use the king to advance their own little kingdoms, their own little platforms, and their own little agendas. And what we see here is that the way of the cross is not just for Jesus the Christ, but the way of the cross is for all of those who would identify with the Christ as well. So let's keep moving. Verse 34. And calling the crowd to him, Jesus, with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what is a profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The way of the cross is for the Christian. The way of the cross is for the follower of Christ. If we are to follow Jesus, there is a cost to discipleship, to our discipleship. We are called in verse 34 to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. We're called to lose. We're called to die to our life. The Greek word here is really our identity. It's that which is central to us. If it is apart from Jesus, if it's not rooted in Jesus, we're called to die to that. We're called to lose that identity. We're called to find our identity in Christ, not apart from Christ. We're called to abandon and die to all of our performance-based identities that say, I have value because of what I do, because of what I create, what I make. I have value because of who I know. I have value because of what I know. I have value because of how I look. I value because of how I stack up. And the list goes on and on. And we are called to utterly abandon that identity. We're called to die to that as our source of identity. And we're called to adopt a new identity that's rooted in the person and work of Jesus, namely rooted in his cross. And, and ultimately, this is a call for us to find a deeper identity, a more secure identity. 
identity, one that can never be taken. Let me explain. If our identity, that which is central to us, that which I find value in, is rooted in what we do or what we have, it's incredibly insecure. If I find my value in, in being a spouse and my marriage falls apart, who am I now? If I find my value in, in, in my worth, in being a good employee and being successful at work and I lose my job and get laid off, what am I now? If I find my value and my worth in being a good person and being better than those around me, keeping rules and stacking up against those around me, and then I fail, who am I now? Not much. But if my identity is rooted in what Christ has done and not in what I have done, See, there's security regardless of circumstance and regardless of performance because it's based on Christ's work and not mine. And I need us to hear that there, there's security in this, but also there's a cost in this. We, we say all the time that all of life is all for Jesus. That is weighty. That is incredibly weighty. We're saying that he is Lord over my life now. To say that my identity is shaped around Jesus is saying that his word shapes my life now. That his mission is my mission. And saying that his way is my way now. That there is this dying to all selfish ambition and a surrendering of all of life to the king. And every week we ask, who is Jesus and how do you respond to him? And we get this really clear picture from Jesus. How do you respond to me? Surrender to Jesus as king over your entire life. We just sang about it. This is costly, but it is worth it. There's security, it is costly, but it is worth it. Because look what Jesus says in verse 35. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And this is good news for us, but I want to I take a step back and say this is really good news for those who this letter is written to. And I even want to like pause here because this is pretty incredible. It's something Dave and I were talking about a little bit ago. And the fact that like Peter is the one who is the source for this book that Mark wrote. He's kind of confirming. He's the eyewitness account to Jesus, his life and mission and kingdom. So uh, Mark, I, it's, just, it's just incredible that Peter does not omit the blunders of his life to Mark. Because if I'm writing this... Like, it goes down a little differently. It's like, oh, yeah, so Mark's writing. It's together on the road to Caesarea Philippi. And so what happened? Well, Mark, let me tell you, this is a good day. You know, Jesus asked, like, who, who do others say that I am? And, you know, we said, you know, John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. And then Jesus asked, like, who do you say that I am? Write this down, Mark. Said, you are the Christ. And, and then Mark's like, and what happened after that? Nothing. He just said, <laughs> just said, that a boy stud. Like that, that's how my story goes down. Like I don't include the Jesus. No. Like, come on. Like, I don't include that, but Peter does, which is incredible. Like when you think about it, like even he doesn't even dumb it down, like at all. He's the idea of like, wait, he really said, get behind me, Satan? Like, yeah. Like I, I just like, he doesn't even try to cover it up. 
it's just amazing. I, I want us to recognize that this is incredible, uh, just the fact that we get this. If we were going to make up a story, it wouldn't be like this. Uh, it's just incredible. And so let us not forget, though, the original audience that Peter and Mark are writing to. Because seriously, they are the persecuted church under the Roman Emperor Nero. And they are being killed. And they are being tortured. And they're being terrorized. And the word for them is those who lose their life for the sake of Jesus and it will save their life. This is really good news. Like, those who lose their life will save it. These people are being killed. It's, it's as if, you know, Jesus is saying to these future Christians, you know, Christians, Rome will tell you you are losing. They will look at you and say, utter failure. You're being dragged in the Colosseum and being torn apart. Failure, losing. You are totally failing. And Jesus is saying, I know what this looks like. I have been there before. Look to the cross. Look to Jesus. Because he is suffering. He is dying. But he is not losing. He is not failing. He is succeeding. He is gaining. See, he is winning and he is conquering in the real war. The world will tell you you are losing, but you are succeeding. See, he is conquering the real battle of evil, Satan, demons, and sin. And they're defeated here at the cross. A symbol of humiliating death is transformed into the symbol of life. That's incredible. And you Christians that are suffering and losing your life all the day long, for the sake of Jesus and the sake of the gospel, you are succeeding with him. This is not loss. What is perceived as failure is success in God's economy. This paradox is astounding. It's unprecedented. In losing your life, in losing your identity apart from Jesus, you gain it. You find an identity rooted in Jesus. And those that seek to save their life and save their identity apart from Jesus, they don't find it. They lose it. It's incredible. Jesus asks, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Jesus is completely redefining success in God's economy. See, you think that gaining the whole world will make you whole. It cannot. It will not. It is a chasing after the wind. Gaining the whole world will not make you whole. Jesus says in verse 38, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes into the glory of his Father with the holy angels. See, be strong, church. Be faithful. You're being killed all the day long. Do not be ashamed in the midst of being put to shame. Be strong. Endure suffering. Although it looks different for us, we are charged with the same thing. Jesus is calling for us to be faithful. Be strong. Do not be ashamed. And I just want this to be a moment for us to realize this. How can you be ashamed of the one who has been so good to you? How can you be ashamed of the one who gave you sight? We were blind and now we see because of Jesus. How are we ashamed? How can we be ashamed of the one who's been nothing but good to us, who's brought us from death to life, who saved our lives, 
who suffered and died in our place for our sin. We have nothing to be ashamed of when it comes to Jesus. He's the one who is faithful. We are the ones who is faithless. We have nothing to be ashamed of with Jesus. And this really brings us to our last verse, Mark 9, verse 1. And he, Jesus, said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So finally, the disciples, they will see the kingdom come in power. But not power like they expected. They will not see Rome overthrown. Jesus will not lead an army and overthrow their oppressors. When they die, Rome will be on the world power throne. They will not see in their lifetime Rome overthrown. But they will see power. See, the gospel is a great paradox. We've talked about this. Up is down. Lose your life when you find it. Let go and you'll acquire See, Jesus is turning the world on its head. Gain is found in loss. Life is found in death. Profit is found in forfeit. See, it's insane. The kingdom of power will come through the cross, through the life, suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The kingdom of God is advancing, but it is not after Caesar's seat. It has a grander vision than political office, Jesus' kingdom. These disciples... They're beginning to understand that Jesus is after something much bigger. All of creation. The disciples, they will see power. Power unlike they expected. They will see lives changed. They will see forgiveness and reconciliation. They will see redemption. They will see restoration. They will see strongholds of darkness. They will see it broken down. They will see that the deaf will hear. They will see the broken healed. They will see captives set free. See, they will see Jesus rise from the dead. The disciples will see the empty tomb. They will see power. They will see Jesus ascend to heaven. They will see the Holy Spirit come and empower them so they might be the people that God is calling them to be. They will endure suffering. Peter, who denied Christ, will be crucified upside down. Church history tells us they will see churches planted. They will see churches grow, and they will see all over this blind world, people receive their sight and understand who Jesus truly is. They will see power, but power unlike they were expecting. And so in closing, church, the, the questions, they are the same. You have to answer them for yourself. Jesus is not asking you, who, who do people say that I am? No, he is asking you, who do you say that I am? Do you believe that he is the Christ? Do you believe that he is the king? Do you believe that he is the savior of the world? If so, this, this changes the way we respond. How will you respond? See the only appropriate way to respond to Jesus as the king is kneeled, surrendered, declaring faithfulness, saying all of life is all for you, Jesus. 
What would you have me do? Let me pray. Jesus, you are the good king who's bringing forth your kingdom and it is coming in power, but power like we do not expect. Thank you, Jesus, that you have a grander mission, that you as the Christ have a grander vision than merely a political agenda. You are out to restore the world. You are out to reconcile all of creation back to yourself. And that has profound implications for us. I pray that if we have not responded to you, if we have never been to me and kneeled to you as king, that we would today for the first time, that we'd have our eyes open, that we would see you for who you truly are, and we'd live all of life off for you. But if we have done that, Jesus, I pray that we would, with bent knee, say we surrender. We love you. We thank you for what you've done. Your grace, Jesus, is incredible. Thank you for what you've done. I pray that we would surrender to you, that we'd be exposed to blind spots, that we truly would live all of life, all for you, Jesus. You deserve nothing less and you're calling for us to do nothing less. Thank you that you initiated and your grace empowers us to ever be able to do this. We love you because you first looked at us. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.